Hi, my name is Kristen Donnelly, and I'm a cookbook author and copywriter who became an enthusiastic student of plants after co-writing a book about vegetables. I started this podcast so I could get down and dirty with other plant obsessives and bring you along for the ride. My guests and I talk gardening, herbalism, plant-based eating, ecological landscaping, and houseplant care. Essentially, all the ways plants can bring us happier, healthier lives. So grab a cup of tea or your watering can and get ready to dig in. This is the Plant Out Loud podcast. So this is the first of an occasional segment I'm going to do where I'm going to answer some questions I received through Instagram. My friend Kendra messaged me on Instagram the other day and said, how the heck do I prune and when? So this is a huge topic, and I'm by no means an expert, but the answer really is it depends. Some plants benefit from being pruned before they flower, others after they flower. So why do we prune anyway? We do it to shape shrubs and trees for aesthetic reasons and sometimes for safety reasons. We also do it so we can stimulate new growth and remove dead stuff from the plant. Speaking of dead stuff, here's one universal thing to know about pruning. You can prune any branch that's dead, diseased, or damaged anytime. No need to wait for the right season. And in fact, when pruning, it's usually the best place to start. After removing the dead stuff, I recommend getting to know the plants you have in your yard and watching videos about how to prune each one. Make sure you clean your tools with rubbing alcohol after you prune so you don't introduce any fungal diseases or other pests to plants throughout the yard. If you have any plant questions, send them my way through DM on Instagram to plant.outloud. And now on with the show. Today, my guest is Baranda Montgomery. She is a professor of biochemistry, molecular biology, and microbiology, and molecular genetics at Michigan State University. She is the author of the new book, Lessons from Plants, a book I love because it weaves together plant science with greater life lessons. And something I really appreciated about this book, Baranda, is that you're a scientist but you write about it in such plain language. So somebody like me without a background in science can understand. But I also love, it seems to me like you bring this awe and wonder to your work. And so I'd love to just talk about what inspired you to write this book. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it felt accessible to you and that the awe and wonder I have for plants comes through the page. So I, I am completely and totally fascinated with plants. And part of the, the ways in which I have engaged Engage my work either in opportunities to talk or opportunities to write or to look at each of these opportunities as a real way to invite people into the enthusiasm I have for plants. A part of the kind of motivation for that as well is based in my family. So I come from a family, none of my family um, are scientists. They're all more into the kind of business or service, health service professions. And so some of my earliest kind of forays into trying to share my enthusiasm from plants really came from trying to explain to my family why and how I've dedicated my life to the study of plants. And having a real connection with my mother, who is a, an amazing gardener, and trying to really connect through that path. So I think really parts, you know, I look at every opportunity to either write about plants or to speak about plants as an opportunity to really invite people into the enthusiasm that I have for them. Yeah, I, it definitely comes through on the page. And I like that you also appreciate Indigenous people's wisdom when it comes mm -hmm. to their observation and their knowledge and talked about braiding sweetgrass, which is a book I also really yes. love. I'm actually only halfway through it because I want to savor it. It's just a, a beautiful book. 
It's interesting that you mentioned Braiding Sweetgrass because I, I got introduced to that book um, and Robin Wall Kimmerer probably about three to five years ago. She was a keynote speaker at a conference that was for fellows of a program that I was involved in. And just hearing her speak so passionately about her upbringing and the ways in which that has informed her life as a plant ecologist, I started reading Braiding Sweetgrass and some other readings. And like you, I took, I'm usually a fast reader, but I intentionally took my time with that book because it, there's a lot there to to really reflect upon. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I find I'll, I'll read a chapter and then spend a couple of days thinking about it. Yes. So plants, a lot of us might think of them as fairly static beings. Mm-hmm. You know, we might observe how sunflowers turn toward the sun or something like that, but they're mm-hmm. so much more complex than that. And I, I'd love to just Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah. I'm no different from anyone else. You know, I I think I write about in the preface, I think it is about growing up in the house with my mother who had house plants everywhere and she had beautiful gardens outside as well. And she had real relationships with her plants. Like she noticed things about them every day. And uh, she and some of her friends, she had friends who talked to their plants. And I was this precocious little kid that said to them, you know, that talking to your plants isn't helping anything. It's just the extra carbon dioxide that you're breathing on them that's causing their growth, right? But I think that, you know, I wasn't really fascinated with them because I thought they were pretty just sitting there, not, you know, not as exciting as the animals and, you know, butterflies and everything else I was chasing out in the yard. And it really did take me myself having a plant physiology class during my undergraduate studies that really opened my eyes to the ways in which Although plants are appearing to us to just sit in one place, they have some really fascinating biology and biochemistry because of that. And unlike animals, which can't just move when the environment's not suitable to them, they really have to be in tune with the environment, responding to it, and at times transforming it. And I think that's when I got so fascinated that in many ways, they have to be better biologists than some animals because of their lifestyle. And that has continued to fascinate me, you know, through all the years I've been a plant scientist, but also a human trying to understand my interdependence with plants. So just some examples. I don't I don't think how much people realize they're always sensing their environment and adapting as they can and sometimes even using their volatile chemicals. So yes basically things a lot of times that we can smell as a language Mm -hmm. to communicate with each other and even insects. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. It's completely fascinating. The the, the volatile organic compounds and other chemicals that plants use to communicate, because whenever I talk about plant language, people look at me and I was like, there's, it's going on all around you. As you say, you're smelling it. Um, Sometimes your sneezes are a response to it. Um, And so it's really fascinating the way that plants are able to communicate, even within a plant, you know, the leaves can communicate with the roots and, and within that single plant, but then also plants in community with each other can communicate. And it's been fascinating to me the ways in which plants and other biological organisms have language that they speak to identical types of plants. So they have a a language where they understand when a plant is the same type of plant or if it's a different kind of plant. And so there's all this fascinating language that indeed is going on around us. And I love the fact that you said you can smell it because now every time someone says, oh, that plant smells well, you know, I love the smell of roses. I said, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it, but it's really not about you. It's about the rose having a communication. (laughs) And we do have the kind of benefit of of enjoying that. So, yes. I think of that actually with Things like basil, I think when I was researching for the book I wrote with the chef's garden, that 
I think it was about how basil sometimes will release different, like very slightly different scents, but if they're a predator insect, yes, that's yes. kind of a warning. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 fascinating that you mentioned that because you know for you you mentioned basil, but I think about um, a lot of flowering plants that depend upon pollinators. So they have one volatile you know volatile organic compound which attracts insect that's helpful to it in terms of pollination, but a different one if the insect is a predator. And so there are these real distinctions that the plant's able to tune which of those compounds it's producing depending on what it it uh, perceives uh, from the insects that are present. That's cool. Um... I'm also glad that you said it's not it's not about you or it's not about the humans necessarily enjoying it yes. because as a cook so much of my interaction with plants was like after they were harvested and it's this one mm-hmm. piece of a plant maybe the root maybe the leaves and working on this book I started gardening and we just spent a lot of time talking about the different life phases of the plants and it gave me an appreciation for basically the plants goals so yes. it's like, oh, yes. they're out here trying to reproduce or, yes. I mean, usually it is reproduction, right? And some, and some, but sometimes yes. they're trying to continue growing. Yes. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's defense. And I think it's fascinating that you say that because certainly for a lot of us, whether we're just humans doing cooking in our homes or we, you know, engage with it as a profession as you do, so much of our interaction with plants is how the flavors uh, resonate with us, how the scents resonate with us. And it really is something underlying that that's completely fascinating about why the plant is producing that thing that's a joy to us, that has nothing to do with us, even though we can benefit from it. So, yes. Right. Something I appreciated about Braiding Sweetgrass was that she did talk about, even though it's like humans can benefit plants and not just through talking to them and our carbon dioxide, Mm -hmm. which they do consume, but there are ways that we can help plants with their goals. (laughs) I was wondering if you had any examples of that. Yeah, I think about, you know, a lot of the examples that she talked about are how we have responsible care for the ecosystem, right? And so sometimes plants, I think about the ways for those of us who are gardeners or even just taking care of our landscaping, a lot of the plants that we have do respond positively to being pruned, right? Or or to, if we planted them in the garden, sometimes we'll cull some of them so that they're not too densely planted. And so I do think that plants exist in interaction with the other other animals around them, including humans. And it's when we understand the kind of responsible care for them that harvesting them sometimes for our use also has a benefit to them in terms of whether we've changed their ecosystem so that they can have more access and aren't too crowded uh, or those kinds of things. And so I think that that's, you know, one of the things that did resonate so well for me from that particular book, but also when you just look at the practices of humans in societies across the world is this kind of responsible interdependence that we have with plants. And so there is this kind of responsible care and engagement with plants that I think is a great thing to focus upon. Responsible interdependence. I love that. So pruning actually is something I've been thinking about because there's a plant. I have some woodland asters in my garden Mm -hmm. and the deer love them. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I noticed this one in particular, it it would grow these bigger leaves. And then after the deer nibbled, it started growing very tiny little leaves. And then it fully flowered, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. So I was actually, I was wondering, I'm like, is that the plant adapting to being nibbled on by the deer and saying, I'm going to grow these tiny little leaves that are much harder for you to eat? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times those responses are, it depends. So it's 
completely in, depends on how much they are nibbled upon by the deer, right? And so if there's a little bit of nibbling, a lot of times you won't see the plants have such a severe response. But if the deer actually eat enough leaves that it starts to signal to the plant that there's potential stress. So there's been enough leaves removed that they can't continue to make as much sugars through photosynthesis as they need. What you're seeing in that uh, change in leaf shape is a transition from kind of growing in a vegetative bushy state to moving to reproductive state. And so often that shift to reproductive state is a plant saying that there is a, such a significant stress that I might not survive. So it's better that I make some offspring so that if I don't survive, at least the species will carry on. And so that really is that transition into, okay, there's enough stress here from these deer that I just need to finalize this cycle, move to flowering and hope that my offspring have a better chance with fewer deer. Got it. <laughs> the, okay. Which, yeah. they, which they won't unless I intervene, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of deer pressure. <laughs> so there's a line in your book, constructing a leaf is a costly and thus risky investment. And I'm someone, I have house plants, and when especially a big house plant, when it starts to uh, put out a new leaf, I like do a little dance. It's really exciting for me. And in a way, reading that line, it felt validating. Like, yeah, this is the this is the plant taking a risk here. So, mm-hmm, is, that, mm-hmm. is that true? Yeah, it is a it it is a big risk, and the risk arises from the fact that plants, like any other organism, have kind of a budget, right? And so, most of us, unless we're independently wealthy, you know, we're Bill Gates or somebody, Oprah, we have a monthly budget, and when the money's done for the month, we have to make different decisions about what kind of behaviors we engage in. And so it's no different with plants that they have a certain amount of energy based upon whatever photosynthesis they've been able to conduct. Once that energy is there, there are kind of these molecular decisions. Am I going to use that energy to maintain the leaves that I already have, you know, in terms of keeping them healthy so that they can continue to photosynthesize and or to put energy in defending against any kind of pest or or stress? Or am I going to invest a significant amount of that energy into trying to make a new leaf so that in the future I've increased my capacity for photosynthesis? And so making a leaf is really costly because it's, you know, you have to put energy into developing the tissues. You have to put energy into transporting sugars from the old leaves that are actively photosynthesizing to this emerging leaf. And so you're basically taking a huge portion of your energy budget, the plants are, and putting that into building a new structure. And while that energy is being diverted, the other leaves are at, you know, the energy is not there for them, perhaps if insects showed up or that kind of thing. And so it is a significant investment that doesn't pay off for some time. And so there really is this kind of weighing of the risk. Is this the right time to try to invest into the leaf? And so it's completely, when you see a new leaf emerging and unfurling, I always say as a, as a houseplant mother or a houseplant parent, a gardener, it's worth a moment of celebration because the risk that the plant took has paid off um, in, in, in that particular instance. So That's cool. Yeah. It, it, it just intuitively felt like something to celebrate. Yes. Now I know it really is. <laughs> there, are, there are good reasons to celebrate yes. it. And that's fascinating to me. So the risk that the re- the reward for putting out that new leaf is basically to generate more food for the plants yes. that can grow right. more. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely there's definitely a metaphor there, especially I feel like in the business world or yes. financial as you <laughs> were describing. Well, you know, even in academia, the, the 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 metaphor that I use is that, you know, as a professor, when I decide that I'm gonna write a new proposal for a new grant or something. 
the time that I put into that is a risk because I don't know if it's going to be successful or not. And I've taken time that I could have been using to to write another paper or improve my, my lectures. And so I think in all aspects of life, personal and professional, we see those same kind of risks, even if we don't look at them as parallel. And hopefully, you know, people who grow plants now will see those parallels to the kind of risk that we take all the time. Right. I'm, I'm always thinking about those parallels and plant metaphors. <laughs> you might not know this, but I have a line of lip balms called Stuart and Claire. What does that have to do with plants, you ask? Well, I make them with organic plant-based oils and butters, as well as golden beeswax. A few of the scents are inspired by cocktails, which, get this, rely on plants for their flavors. Take our best-selling Negroni lip balm. To mimic the scent of the botanicals that go into this drink, I make a balm with essential oils distilled from juniper, clove, sweet and bitter orange, among others. Plant Out Loud listeners can get 15% off all your orders from Stuart and Claire. Just go to stuartandclaire.com, that's Stuart with a W and Claire with an I, and use the code PLANTOUTLOUD at checkout. So you wrote a chapter about plant pioneers who, yes, they're the plants that come in to a site that's been disturbed for potentially a long time and they disrupt and heal. I'd love to talk about what some of those plants are and then the parallel to humans. Absolutely. So I think about this in larger ways, but I think also there are some kind of common parallel examples. So I think about the first examples just to bring people into it. Many of us have seen plants that are growing in the crack of a sidewalk through concrete, or many of us are really disturbed when we see plants growing in our driveway, right? Like through the asphalt. That is a type of pioneer plant. Now, thinking about larger kind of disruptions where we've had perhaps a fire or, um, you know, for people who live near active volcanoes, a volcanic disruption, pioneer plants are very similar to those that we would see growing in the crack of the sidewalk. Pioneer plants are often thought of as weeds in many cases because they are frequently plants that have an ability to disrupt what is kind of a disturbed environment. So one of the things about, you know, fire ecosystems or volcanic eruptions is that the soil is often not very rich. In many cases, it can be compacted or other kinds of things. And so one of the real features of pioneer plants is that they have the ability to take root in environments that seem like they're kind of not generally conducive to that. And so there's, I think of them as scrappy little plants. They have these roots that are able to really kind of disrupt an environment. And also they have the ability, the roots of pioneer plants, most environments that are being uh, invaded in where pioneer plants are taking roots don't have a lot of nutrients. And so pioneer plant roots have this ability to often excrete substances that really allow them to transfer compounds that are not accessible. And one of the most common examples I think about is rust. So rust is really iron. Iron is needed by plants and plant roots can excrete something that allows rust to become kind of liquefied so that the iron is now accessible. Um, They often, pioneer plants also have roots that can kind of spread out and scavenge for limited resources. And so pioneer plants really have this ability to both make the best of making their way, but also transforming the environment to extract what they need. And in the the process of extracting what they need or making iron more soluble, other plants that come behind them find an environment that's been enriched by the presence of these pioneer plants. And one of the reasons I really started to think about that is that cultural change is something that we talk about a lot, either in our social environments or professional environments. 
And I think that frequently when we think about it, we there are these beautiful examples of cultural change, such as an ecosystem arising in like a de, you know deserted parking lot or in a in an area after a natural disaster. And for me, those are really examples of plants undergoing cultural change, and they start with the presence and activity of pioneer plants, which have the ability to exist when resources are limited, but by their presence in the environment, they increase the availability of resources, therefore transforming the environment. And so I think of those as really great examples for the kinds of individuals we need to think about bringing into a space when we want to initiate cultural change. What plants, I, mean, I guess it depends on the, the ecosystem. I guess I was going to say what examples of plants are pioneer plants? Yeah, so a lot of times pioneer plants are in families like crucifers. So one of the crucifers we study in the lab is Arabidopsis thaliana. But these crucifers are related to things, um, some common ones we would know are broccoli, but broccoli aren't great pioneers, but the wild versions would be. But often they're small little plants that don't look very robust because they're really putting their energy into just growing enough to make seed, growing enough to make the roots to disturb the environment, as opposed to, you know, having enough excess energy to grow into kind of leafy and showy plants that we're more attracted to. So when a plant is suffering, we often assume something is wrong with the environment rather than the plant, which I, which I love. It's so true, you know, especially with a house plant, you see it wilting, maybe you water it or you change the light, move it to a different part of your home. and I love the parallel you created with people because, yes, people can get up and move, but the environment has such an effect on people and especially young people. And yet with people, we're so quick to blame the individual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the most powerful examples that emerged early when I started to really understand um, the power of lessons from plants. And, And really, that particular one, I think, has resonated so well because you don't have to be a plant scientist, a biologist, or anything to to really understand that concept. It is, I believe, a very general human principle that humans expect that plants should grow. Um, if you ask most humans about that, they ex- they show up with an expectation that plants should grow. They expect that plants should be green unless they are, you know, a variety that has variegated leaves. And so, as you say, we would very very, it would be very rare that any human would look at a plant that's yellowing and their first assumption would be this plant is incapable of greening. The questions we would ask are, why is the plant not green? Is there some deficit in the environment? And so whenever I use that example, with such, you know, it could be people from any discipline. It could be people outside of, of scholarly circles. It really does resonate. It, you know, yep, that is my expectation that the, if there's a plant, it should grow. And I just really believe it's really powerful if we could transfer that belief to people who are in our environments, as you say. We often think about, well, go to, you know, if the schools are bad, move to another neighborhood. But if you are in a place where that's where you live and there's no chance, how can we really ask how we can mediate the environment as opposed to assuming that children who are in that environment simply don't have the capacity to grow. They don't have, you know, we do default to these individual deficit models that if an individual is struggling, what's wrong with you? And I particularly, you know, in the spaces that I work in universities, I particularly challenge that because in so many of this, you know, when we talk about children growing up in a particular environment, maybe their parents don't have luxuries to move. But in a lot of cases, we're selecting people. So for colleges, we're selecting high school students who have been successful. 
And so when they come into our environments through a highly selective process, it seems to me illogical that if they're struggling, that our first question would be, what's wrong with you? Because we didn't just pick you off the street. We, we selected you based on so many characteristics. You were on a path to success. And so it makes no sense to me that one of the first questions wouldn't be, what have we done to derail the success that was already apparent? And I think we do that in education circles, but it happens frequently in a lot of other cases as well. And so I do think it's a, it's, it's a paradigm shift for us to enter spaces asking those parallel questions. Maybe the individual does need some help, but also how can we ask questions about whether they don't have access to something they need in our environment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I hope everybody listening reads this book, but really spend some time with that chapter. Toward the end of the book, there's a story about your son's tree, um, which I feel like you should write a children's book about that, (laughs) your next project. Yes. But I'd I'd love for you just to talk about that because I think that might inspire some people to do something similar. Yeah. So when my son was born, we decided to plant a tree at at about the same time. And we thought of it, his name is Nicholas, it's Nicholas's tree. And, you know, we reflect on it every year. We watch it go through the seasons. And over, you know, over the years, I've said to him, when we first planted the tree, it started bending. And I said, you know, young trees have a tendency not to kind of grow up straight and need a little assistance finding their way. So let's pull the string towards. Um, And as we worked on that, you know, there would be times where I was trying to correct him. And I would say, you remember when we had to pull the tree? I need to pull you a little bit. And so it's really been fun. He has his tree and we watch trees in the neighborhoods. We watch the life cycle and make intentional reflections on how the plant is growing and how there may be parallels, things that we can learn from what that plant is growing through. Um, And we have delightful pictures. I'll tell him we should co-author a book on it. We have delightful pictures of him next to his tree when for a long time, you know, he was taller than the tree or the tree went through a growth spurt and it was taller than him. And, you know, the tree, because of the life cycle of trees is still, it's still growing um, and he's reached adulthood. But I do think it's been really meaningful for us to have this point of reflection to think about means to go through a life cycle. And, you know, there were periods where um, I remember when he was probably seven or so, the tree started to have some disease from something. And so that was a chance to talk about what happens when um, a tree is sick. And at the same time, we had a family member going through a sickness. And I'll never forget the little seven-year-old said, well, the tree, you know, has great power to heal itself. So we talked about that and we started to have those kinds of conversations. And I do think sometimes, you know, it's interesting, a colleague of mine said, oh, my child, we planted a tree as well. And we started to share stories. So I do think that, you know, it is interesting to have a tree or a garden or something that allows you to have these reflections of how life proceeds through the eyes of another being. And that's been really fascinating fascinating to to watch that tree, to reflect for him and to now see him also kind of, you know, he's away at college and he says, how's my tree? No, <laughs> it, it's, it's been really fun. So thank you for, for pulling that, that out. Oh, sure. Yeah. It, it gives me chills. I'm wondering from your point of view, is there any plant advice you see out there that you're like, uh, no, <laughs> That's not great advice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have, I can't think of like just um, some common advice that I see um, about about plants that I think, oh, that's horrible advice. 
I do sometimes see advice that I think, oh, that's not biologically based advice. And and that was one of the, the motivations I had for wanting to write this book. And I remember when I was having early conversations with my editor, she said, who is the book for? Is it for other plant scientists? Is it for gardeners? And I said, for me, it's for anyone who has a question about plants. Because I think that too frequently, we don't understand the biology behind it. And, you know, earlier when we were talking about the volatile organic compounds and the sense of things that you cook with. It's just so fascinating to understand the biology behind it. And I think particularly for people who do garden or, or, you know, grow plants, it is fascinating to know that. I, you know, I do sometimes, I I follow a lot of people on Instagram who are plant, uh, plant growers and, and such. And it's, it's interesting to me sometimes to see the things that they, you know, they're doing to their plants that don't necessarily, necessarily need to be done. But I do think it's about building a relationship with the plant. And so if that's if that's what comes out of it and it's no real harm, then you know, yeah. <laughs> Who are you loving on Instagram? Can you think of anybody off the top of your head? Oh, there are so many great plant Instagrammers. I follow a lot of them. And last week as I was uh last year as I was a part of uh, Black Botanist Week, I got introduced to a lot of new um Instagrammers. So I think, you know, there's the chocolate botanist who studied botany in undergrad, Derek. Um he does some really fascinating reels and engagement. Um Solstice to Plants. And then there's a podcast, Plant Kiki, which is for people who grow plants. There's a lot of good people. I, and I'm sure I would, if I had thought about it in van, advance, I'd call additional names. But I think that Plant Instagram and also Book Instagram, there's some really fascinating things going on in those spaces right now. We can all look at who you follow just to get inspiration. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, what is your Instagram handle? It's at Baranda underscore M. Okay, great. A question I just like to ask everybody is, and you you have so many lessons from plants, but what's a lesson Mm -hmm. um, that most, your most recent lesson from a plant um, or one you're very excited about right now? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think part of one of the lessons that I really do, it's one of the lessons many of us learn, but for me, Um, I marveled at it as opposed to being aggravated by it. And one of the, it's a lesson that recomes to me is the the power of not just rushing into your, your, your kind of purpose. And I think about that from roots. So recently my neighbor had to have their, um, some part of the yard dug up because roots had gotten into their pipes and was causing problems. And she was so frustrated. She had come over because they needed to connect to my water. And I said, you know, it's really quite fascinating the persistence of that root, right? Because it meant a metal pipe and it could have just decided to go another way, but it really said, this is the path I'm on. And not even this metal pipe is going to stop me. And it's a slow process for the root to actually keep putting the pressure on. And it's really driven by it just sensing any kind of minute moisture. And that moisture is so critical that it stays with it and grows and just continues to exert pressure. And I think when you think about it, you know, on a kind of surface level, you you think about the strongness of a metal pipe and you think about a plant root and you assume the pipe is always going to win. But that plant is persistent no matter how long it takes to its purpose. And I think that, that you know, every time I re-encounter that, even while, and so it's interesting, I'm smiling because my neighbor said, yep, that is a great lesson for plant. I'm sure I'm going to appreciate that after I'm done playing this plumber. But right now I just need this fix. But, you know, when you really think about it, it's a powerful lesson for persisting, even when it seems impossible that you're going to get to your purpose um, through, through the other side. That is awesome. Yeah. I was, I was both like marveling at it and feeling 
your neighbor's pain. So (laughs) she said to me, let's talk about that later. (laughs) It's reminding me of this story I once heard of somebody's snake plant that they had for years and years. And suddenly, like one day the the pot just burst because it was building pressure within the The power of the roots. (laughs) Roots are, are so powerful. And I think I'm so impressed with them because generally they're out of sight, right? And we don't Mm -hmm. think a lot about them, but there's very powerful and, and the plant, all the parts of the plants that we see depend upon them. And there's some really powerful activities going on under our foot. And they're, they're the beginning. Like when you plant a seed, you yes. often see the little root That's right. first. So that's yeah, right. Again, that's it's right. like the, it, yeah. the life starts below the surface and yes. there's a lot yes. going on. So, well, thank you so much for um, joining me and for writing this book, Lessons from Plants. I hope everybody reads it and learns something and um, follows you on Instagram. So um, thank you thank so you. much. Thanks again for the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. Sure. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I could have talked to Dr. Montgomery all day. I loved learning that it really is something to celebrate when my plants put out new leaves. It shows we are making our plants comfortable enough to take risks. And it's so cool to learn that a plant scent isn't really for us to enjoy, but it's produced to attract pollinators and repel pests. And isn't it such a good idea to plant a tree when you have a child? Have you ever done that? I'd love to hear. As always, you can DM me on Instagram at plant.outloud. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a review or send me a DM with your plant questions on Instagram at plant.outloud. Even better, tell a friend about this episode. Let's keep growing, friends.